I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 61, we read two articles by our own Kyle Salmon, and then another article by J.D. Vance, all published in 2020. So Kyle, after two years of this podcast, and this is our 61st episode, I'm not sure our listeners know much about your background. So yeah, why don't you give I'm, us your bio. I'm used to yeah, I'm used to giving the bio for somebody else, so I'll, I'll do my own. Um, I was born in Philadelphia and raised there. Uh, got a history degree from St. Joseph's University in 2001, and then moved to Washington D.C. to attend law school at George Washington University. I think we actually overlapped there a, bit, a while, though. I didn't. We didn't know each other back then. And then I moved back to Pennsylvania, uh, practiced law for about 10 years, and before transitioning to full-time writing and researching and punditry and all of the, and podcasting, of course. And, uh, so my, my family and I still live right outside of Philadelphia and, uh, yeah, that, that's my bio. It's, uh, it's strange not to be talking about somebody else. <laughs> it's good stuff. And, yeah. and I'm going to brag on you. Kyle is a regular author at uh, the Federalist. He writes great stuff. So listeners, you should absolutely get connected there and get it in your feed. And a couple of his really great articles he's written just in the last couple of months. I said to him, like, these are good. And so we need to have this conversation because it's so timely. So Thanks. tell us, what's uh, it about? Well, I mean, the, the first one came out in, let's see, about a month ago in August. It's called, and the, the title was Kamala Harris is not... Tells blue collar Democrat, sorry, tells blue collar workers that Democrats are done with them. Harris is now the voice of a new, aloof, wealthier liberalism that seeks only to manage the decline of America's economic might. So what I'm writing about here is, I think, sort of the the final decay of the FDR coalition, that massive supermajority that was built in the 30s, you know, during the Depression and and World War II. Afterwards, you know, just sort of the the idea that. After the Depression, FDR elected in a landslide and, and built up this idea that he and the Democratic Party were the, the voice of, of what they used to call uh, the little people, the working folks, basically, you know, what, what the Hillary Clinton called everyday Americans in a, her own bizarre turn of phrase. Since that, and, that, and that, that, that means a lot of different people. I mean, that meant poor folks everywhere. It meant, you know, people in small business. It meant people in factories people who worked on farms, in mines, police, uh, you know, uh, ethnic minorities in the cities and in, the, and in rural areas, and especially uh, union members. So, you know, you get that all together. That's most of America. Get, that's why FDR rolled up some pretty big majorities. Mm-hmm. Since that time, different pieces have been flaking off. The Democrats lost Southern white people in the 60s, but they gained Southern black people who were by then being allowed to vote. So... It wasn't, you know, who was, it wasn't, it didn't mean the end of their party in the South, just the decline. But as we get to today, 
you know, after our whole, nearly our whole life, we've seen both parties sort of endorse the, the free trade uh, consensus where the Democrats used to be the protectionist party, the one who was saying that we need these tariffs to protect American jobs. You know, we, that, that was FDR's thing. And that was, you know, a lot of Democrats since then, even, even still, I mean, in 2016, Bernie Sanders talked that way and he still kind of does. And Elizabeth Warren still kind of does, although they say it in a way that makes it clear that they don't like what Trump is. So it's, it's confusing, mm-hmm. but there's also been since the nineties and even it has accelerated in the past 10 years, democratic efforts to win over corporate America because, you know, and, and Vance talks about this in his article, which we'll get to that is where the money is. That's how, that's how Bill Clinton, you know, ascended the, the ladder of politics to get the democratic nomination is because he made his party more friendly to corporations. So in the one, on the one hand that says to the voters, look, I'm not crazy. I'm not looking to, you know, I'm not a communist or anything, you know, so that, that reassured middle-class voters, but it also said to corporations, look, we're not going to, we're going to let you do what you want, you know? So you can feel comfortable with me in office. You can donate to my campaign and later to my uh, foundation. And that worked. And that's really what, what I think, I think Harris is kind of the apotheosis of that. I mean, what, what, what she represents in her state is not, it's not miners. It's not farmers. It's not small businessmen. It's not people in manufacturing. And there is still some manufacturing in California, but those folks, those folks are moving to the Republican party and, or at least they're becoming independents who hate both parties. And a lot of, a lot of those kind of folks voted for Trump because they saw him as the same sort, sort of a pox on both your houses candidate. So but that basically my argument in, in this piece was that the embrace of corporate America, especially the upper echelons of corporate America has been good for the Democrats fundraising, but it really shows that they're abandoning that, which was the base of their party for close to a century. Yeah. Let's take a moment to really absorb that fact. I mean, literally the, the base of the new deal coalition, the core of the democratic party and democratic coalition really was these working class whites, those that worked as miners, you know, union workers, farmers, as you said, day laborers, the forgotten man. I mean, this, this has been the democratic coalition for 60, 70 years and that's changing. And we have this idea that, that the parties remain static. Uh, Republicans are always this and Democrats are always that, but what you described very well in this, in this article, and I think you, you just laid out for us just now is that no, they actually, the, the coalitions evolve and that's what they are on or these political parties are coalitions of groups with sometimes similar interests, sometimes dissimilar interests. And we'll get to that also with, with JD Vance's article, but, mm. but for, for the Democrats, they had um, Southerners and working class whites as part of the new deal coalition. And then, and then with civil rights, you had a shift of more African-Americans becoming democratic. Remember the democratic party was the, the, the party of segregation and Jim Crow, but that started to change in the sixties. So you had more African-Americans moving to the Democrats and, and then in the seventies and eighties, more Southerners 
moving Republican. And in the nineties, really with Newt Gingrich is where kind of that final realignment uh, came together in total, where you had the South was basically Republican and, and then big cities with a lot of African-Americans were was the Democrats, but they still, especially under Bill Clinton still had sort of the, the, the man from Hope, Arkansas, right? I mean, he yeah. still won quite a few of those Midwestern and, and Southern states, not just Arkansas. But what's uh, what this the shift that we're seeing now is that coal miners, they're not Democrats anymore. <laughs> no, <and laughs> which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, they were for decades. It's, I mean, it's a it's a heavily unionized industry. You know, it's dangerous work. It's hard work, and it was one that I mean, if you look at when Al Gore lost West Virginia in two thousand, it was the first time in for and Reagan won it in eighty four, but he won everything in eighty four. But you know, it was pretty much it was one of the first times in a close election that that West Virginia and other coal mining areas went against the Democratic Party, and it was kind of surprising. But it, when you, it's it is and it isn't. I mean, on the one hand, you look at it and you say, well, you know, Gore's you know an environmentalist and he was against coal and everything else, so why shouldn't why would coal miners vote for him? But people get into habits and, you know, I mean, they might not exactly like that part of his platform, but they'll say, well, you know, when, when I was a kid or when my parents were kids, you know, FDR helped us out. He led our country through war. It was, you know, he's a, he, he, there is a generation that really views him as a American savior. And that carries on through generations, you know, and so you keep doing what you're used to. And they're just like there's a lot of Republicans who voted for Trump, even though they don't particularly like him because they're Republicans and that's who you vote for. But as you say, the parties aren't static and they're they're going to shift. And eventually, if enough of your interests aren't represented by your party and enough of them start to be represented by the other party, I mean, it, it takes a extraordinary degree of pigheadedness to keep voting against all the things you like and in favor of all the things that you think are harmful. And that, that, that's finally starting to happen. Yeah. And I mean, a great example again is the, is the realignment from Southern, uh, Southern states and then African-Americans moving Democrat and Southerners moving Republican. Well, kind of the, the spark for all that happened in the fifties and then most, and throughout the sixties. But to your point about, people and their habits. I mean, it really took until all the way till Newt Gingrich in the 1990s for that realignment to complete itself. And, and part of that is because, you know, I've always been a Republican or I've always been a Democrat or whatever. And it's kind of, it does take a little bit of time, but here it, it feels like with the Trump phenomenon and maybe even COVID we'll see some of these trends are accelerating I mean, again, coal miners, I just find to be really astounding because it was New Deal Democrats like Jay Rockefeller and Senator Rockefeller and and and, and folks like that. You have, you know, Senator Byrd, who mm-hmm. stood up for federal money for black lung disease and federal regulations uh, for at MSHA and, you know, like. <laughs> the Democrats were the champions of coal miners and day laborers, you know, and farmers in the field. And, and now if, essentially, if you're, a, if, if you tell me you're a farmer, I can say with about a 95% sure certainty that you're Republican. Right. And that, that just was not, uh, was not the case. Um, even when you and I were younger. And so For like sure. moving, fo- moving forward, I think s- some of these, 
some of these trends are accelerating and, and, um, I absolutely see this in my own personal experience that people who, who work at large, large corporations on the coast or wall street, I mean, they're rapidly moving to the left and some of them were maybe Bill Clinton Democrats in that they, they wanted to help the little man and, but also wanted to make money. Um, Mm. but helping the little man is not really part of the democratic coalition anymore. Now it's, it's, uh, what you point out here, which I thought was so very good is, uh, it's, uh, the social issues of are, are you, or are you not, you know, woke or, or (laughs) how do you feel about racism in America? And that becomes the new like social litmus test versus, versus are you for the working man or, you know, working class people. And I think, I think Democrats would probably push back and say that they're, it's, it's that they, it's not that they're not for the little man anymore. It's just they have a different idea of who the little man is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. And that's through this new lens of, you know, intersectional, you know, the stuff that's coming out of the Academy since the nineties and is actually being picked up on finally by trendy folks and, uh, you know, corporate leaders. But it, it it's the sort of thing that rings false to a guy who's, you know, barely making ends meet in some Midwestern city. But he's being told now that he's the face of privilege. And that's, that's at least with, with the economic definitions, and the, you know, the New Deal sort of definition, it cut across everything. You know, if there was a social program that was going to help the poor, it was going to help the poor no matter what they look like or what they, where they come from. But now you're seeing this sort of this change in emphasis that really i think there's two things it, it it alienates those who are now considered on the outs but it also because of who's pushing it it's very popular it's very trendy and you know there's it it's funny you think about you think of somebody who's a ceo of a big corporation and, and most of us think you know if i had that kind of money i'd do whatever i want you know I wouldn't, I wouldn't care if my politics were popular or not. And, but when you're hanging out with other rich folks, you do want to be popular. They're, they're just as vain as anybody else. And, right, right. You know, they're just like I'm hanging out in this middle-class neighborhood and I, you know, I want other middle-class people to not scorn me. So I think it, it's, there is, you know, Zuckerberg might be a billionaire, but he's still going to have to, he, he still feels like he has to be in line with the, whatever the popular trends of that, the cool kids that he knows are talking about. Yeah. His peer group. I think that's, and that, 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 that didn't really dawn on me until recently. Cause I, you know, I, it's like, um, John Mulaney, the comedian said that, uh, Trump is a hobo's idea of a rich man, but he was kind of my idea of a rich man too. You know, he said he does what he wants, <laughs> you know, he puts his name in <laughs> giant letters on everything. Uh, he's kind of a jerk sometimes, you know, but, I think that's what most people think they'd do if they had money, but the but peer pressure is still peer pressure and, and herd mentality is still herd mentality. Even if you change herds. Yeah. That's a really great insight. So you say by selecting Harris, Biden concedes that the democratic future is with the, you put here is the snobby intelligentsia, which I, I take as a, a quote from Biden, but yeah, what's, yeah. what's the significance of Harris to you? I mean, what help us understand what you mean by that? Well, I think, I think with, with Biden, you know, you're kind of get, Biden's been on both sides of every issue. You don't know what you're getting with him. And it's sort of, I think he's the sort of guy who goes along 
with what the party wants. He's a party man. You know, I mean, he, his, his positions when he first came to office are all opposite of what he is now. And that's not what most people do, but it's what a lot of politicians do, especially, you know, if your party's moving left and they keep electing you, well, then you're, you know, you're, that's what you are now because that's where the votes are. That's where the donor money is. Okay. He's also 78 years old. And I think from the time it was clear he was going to get the nomination, there was, everybody was looking at who's going to be his vice president, not just because he might die, but also because it signals what he thinks the future of the party is and what kind of people are going to be in his administration. And I mean, I'm not an Elizabeth Warren fan by any means, but I think she has more of a focus on the sort of trade issues and economic issues that are old Democrat stuff where Harris is really just the, uh, I mean, people say San Francisco liberal and it's like a turn of phrase and it's, you know, it's a lazy shorthand, but in her case, it's true. She's from, she's from that area. And what she represents is a lot of the Silicon Valley types, the, uh, the rich, the limousine liberal, the, uh, they call it gauche caviar in French. It's <laughs> a nice turn of phrase too. It's a different faction of the party. And, you know, often the VP is just a, a balancing act, uh, you know, a nod to one faction that didn't like you. And now you want to bring them on board. You know, it's, it's often nothing, but I think in this case, it's more something, especially when both the people running for president are quite old. Yeah. And I mean, I think it, I think this was borne out. I think you're exactly right because in so many of the responses that I heard and also that were written and published and so forth when Kamala Harris was chosen, I mean, it really was from those elites on the coast. It was sort of like a, oh yeah, good, <laughs> you know, kind of great pick. You know, I, I must have heard it like twenty times, like great pick. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, what, what's the great part about it? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's it's good or bad, but um, just help me understand where you're coming from. And that more or less is what they describe would describe is sort of like, well, she's. She's not a Bernie crazy, but you know, she basically, she has our coastal cultural tastes and she's not going to be that bad on business, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, uh, I, well, that's the I general mean, attitude now. For sure. I mean, the, the markets went up after she got picked, which tells you a lot because every time it looked like Bernie was going to get the nomination, the markets went down because they knew he'd right. actually take their money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he might turn us into Venezuela. <laughs> <you know? laughs> But the rest of them, they're just faking it. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, so of course that's good stuff from you. Let's turn our attention, if you don't mind, let's go to the to the Vance article. This is something he published in the summer. It's called End the Globalization Gravy Train. And the bottom line is he's, he sees some of these changes, these tectonic shifts happening below the radar too. Now, we should say that uh, J.D. Vance is definitely in the first things camp. That is like those who are maybe called, used to be called reformicons, but folks who are uh, traditionalist conservatives. And there's not a lot of love lost with those conservatives that are more libertarian, like that, maybe the Paul Ryan wing of the party. What used to be the Wall Street wing, but I'm not even sure there's a Republican Wall Street wing anymore, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. But. But uh, so he takes aim at Republican donors, cons uh, conservative intellectual movement is what he calls because traditionally, and you and I have talked about this on our podcast 
more than once. You know, the the contemporary, well, let's say the the night the the Reagan coalition and the 1990s Republican coalition brought together national security hawks, the f- free market, um, pro uh, pro business kind of. We, you might say that they were lean libertarian, and then social conservatives. Social conservatives meaning abortion, gay marriage, social issues like that. And that was kind of the three-legged stool. And what Vance says is that the non-cynical view of of that intellectual movement is that these groups, these three groups, shared a common enemy in the 80s, and that was the Soviet Union. And that's sort of what pulled them all together because you know, each one of these groups, there is some crossover, but not entirely. I mean, mm-hmm. the national security hawks who we're really talking about is a lot of neocons, neoconservatives who joined, who had been Democrats before, but who were appalled with the the way that the Democrats were trying to uh, appease and at least behave weakly towards the Soviet Union, and so they started, you know, shifting to the Republican Party, especially under Reagan, and. And some of them were free market people and some were not. And very few of them were socially conservative mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, social conservatives like Mike Huckabee, you know, was not necessarily super fiscally conservative, you know, with, uh, with maybe the, the Paul Ryan types. So there was some crossover, but not, not entirely so. And Vance is saying like, well, maybe these groups shared a common enemy, the Soviet Union. And that's really what the glue that held them together. But he, but his real argument is that he has a more cynical view that he calls the cynical view, which is that it's the market obsessed donors that funded a bunch of think tanks and organizations and grassroots that he doesn't say this outright, but, but really the implication is they brought along and tolerated social conservatives and to a lesser extent, like national security hawks in order to form a coalition that could, could beat the Democrats. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I incline against the cynical view here. I think he's a little too cynical. I think, I think the fusionism argument that Meyer came, came up with, we talked about that back in episode 58. I think there's something to that. I think there's a, there's more overlap between libertarianism and social conservatism than we give it credit for. But certainly, uh, I mean, you know, think tanks it's not it's not nothing the the funding it's not nothing he's not wrong i mean rn cass has a new think tank that's sort of along and i think vance is involved with them but it's the only one that's like that and it's new you know uh, there's yeah. i because i remember looking i said is there any sort of like trade protectionist think tank out there it's like not really you know there's plenty of free traders um and there's plenty that are just neutral on trade but i don't that's where all the donations and the uh, intellectual capital are concentrated in DC. So I don't know. Maybe I should be more cynical, but I, Vance certainly is. Well, he he raises a really interesting point, and of course, he's trying to unmask that to sort of say, actually, where the Republican, a lot of Republicans, working class whites in particular, are right now, is not with this what he calls. Um, hyper individualist market obsessed donor class of that, that funds conservatives and Republicans, but that there it's because of the money that we, that Republicans have, have moved in this direction. But if we could figure out a way, what we need to do is break free of them and, mm. and, uh, and have a, and what he calls an anti-globalization agenda as a, you know, kind of a protectionist 
although they have some subtleties about the way they they're talking about protectionism but but it is so it's not traditional protectionism but it is right but it is a a managed trade situation and yeah yeah he references uh japan's effort to uh, fund the reshoring of industry from china but i think i'm not exactly sure what the mechanism is that they're doing that by but it's not traditional tariffs it's um it's probably more just like a straight subsidy to businesses if they build back home instead of building overseas he likes that i, I don't there's probably a lot of people that would like that here but it's really interesting to me that the, the target of his ire really is the same group of really big corporations and big business and you know the nba and <laughs> and mm-hmm. these these sorts of targets that in the past under the old under the new deal coalition those would have been the bogeymen of the Democrats. And yeah. the, so I think this, it, it, it really fits well with your thinking too, because he's also seeing the same thing, which is like, oh, these guys aren't for us. You know? <laughs> and, and, and in your article, you're saying like Kamala Harris shows that, well, those guys might be, you know, the, the Democrats might be cozying or at least moving in the same direction while you have a guy like J.D. Vance clearly saying, like what we need to do is decouple from China, uh, have some managed trade. Like globalization is, is not a panacea. And he's very critical of, of Milton Friedman's quote about America sends bales of green paper to China and China gives us stuff. Now I remember that very clearly being taught in my econ one-on-one class and actually it was an, I felt like it was an enlightening moment. Like, yeah, that's true. They're giving us things and we're just giving them paper. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it sounds great, but if you do it forever, then we don't have any more paper. Right. And I think that's, and, that's what Vance, or at least we have it, but it's not worth anything. Yeah. And he's, and he's, so he's going to say a better deal. He says a better deal might include millions of men in the South and Midwest with jobs instead of pill bottles and iPhones and communities with more steady father figures instead of more opioids. So the, his critique is that, yeah, maybe we are just sending bales of green paper and they're giving us stuff, but consumer consumption shouldn't be the end all be all because what's left in its wake is, is a lot of families that don't have steady jobs, you know, manufacturing that's been, some of which has been outsourced. A lot of that of course has been overtaken by, artificial intelligence and, and efficiencies mm-hmm. from, from technology. And, uh, which is, you know, another question for another day, but, um, but the point here being too, the, the, the meta point is that you're not the only one seeing these same trends and, and you have a guy like JD Vance, who's, who hopefully will someday have on the show. And of course, um, I, I've read his book and it's, it's worth um, doing a podcast on it at some point, mm-hmm. uh, hillbilly elegy. But you have folks like this and, and, and a growing chorus really that are, that are starting to say like, Hey, actually traditional conservatives, we're talking about white working class now, and we actually have different concerns. And so you're really seeing the, the forgotten man shifting from the new deal Democrats to what is now the new Republican party, the Trump Republican party. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> I think that was building on both sides in 2016. And had, had it gone a different way, I mean, it, that 
sort of sentiment might have found if if it had been Bernie Sanders versus Jeb Bush, that might have been the that might have flipped the other way. You know, a lot of those sure, folks might yeah. have gone even, and I think that would have been ultimately more harmful because I think Bernie's policies would ultimately uh, do a lot worse for America. Just because, I mean, well, I mean, he's a communist, and that never works. <laughs> but, but the sort of spirit that animates his supporters, not the ones who are not not the real intellectual Marxist, but just the regular guy who says, "Yeah, I like what he's saying." That, that you know, this system isn't working for everybody. That that spirit was going to take hold in one of the parties in 2016. It happened to be in the Republican Party. But it didn't. It it could have gone a different way. It just there there are people who, and I think we talked about before. You know, when you look at the how voters see themselves on the the economic axis and the social axis, you had parties who were at two corners, and then a lot of people were up towards that third corner of the square, and then libertarians were at the fourth corner, and no one was there. But you know, <laughs> up in the up in the other area, it was sort of the Trump Republican, the Sanders Democrats, all mixed together, and a lot of it didn't make sense. But there were a lot of votes there, and uh, they were there because there were a lot of people who, despite being told by both parties that globalization was working for them, and that you know, oh, you you know, your wages might be stagnant, but look at all the cheap stuff we can buy now. I mean, all the stuff we're getting for that bale of green printed paper that Friedman talked about. Yeah. Look at it. You know, you got air conditioning now. You got a big TV. You got this. You got that iPhone. Yeah. But they were sitting around feeling like I'm somehow worse off, you know? And it it's not it's not their imagination. I think we're we're slowly coming to that realization that there there is more to life than the iPhone. Right. And and on the face of it, the idea that the same person if their first choice was Bernie, their second choice was Trump or vice versa, just seems completely insane. And, yeah, it does. Okay, this must be a, <laughs> a voter who has zero information and, and doesn't know what you know she or he's talking about. But then you have a conversation like this, and as things are starting to develop, you're kind of like, well, it makes a little bit more sense because you have two guys who are in the field saying trade with China in normal trade relations. That was a mistake, and what we're doing is a problem, and... And then two guys who who had a voice for that white white working class, and you know Trump wasn't necessarily in in lockstep with other Republican candidates, and Bernie certainly isn't of Democratic candidates. Although over time he became more of the wokeanista than, yeah. than he, you know he had been earlier. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's it, it starts to make a little bit more sense, like where the spectrum of uh, political views comes f full circle and touches end to end. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I had the I I read plenty of articles making that same point. How can there be Sanders Trump voters? And I knew people who were stand, voted Sanders in the primary, Trump in the general. This doesn't make any right. sense, but <laughs> but but you know, I mean, because the area I grew up in is Trump's uh, biggest area in Philadelphia, and it's not a it's not it, you, there used to be a lot of Democrats there, and there still are, but they. They weren't on board with what was being sold in 2016, and I don't know. Maybe they will be in 2020. I mean, boy, Biden's playing up his Pennsylvania roots pretty good. Maybe that'll resonate with somebody. I, I don't know. Is there is there anyone in Scranton who remembers Biden living there? <laughs> no, I mean he, he moved eighty years ago almost. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's uh, before we uh, 
lose time, let's make sure we get your other article, which I think fits so well with all this entire conversation. And it's called Trump's growing Hispanic support shows cracks in Democrats' plans. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, I mean, this is sort of about what what the Democrats are replacing the New Deal vision with in their platform. It's and it's the you know the woke thing, and what um, what some of the polls were finding and what was uh, freaking people out a couple of weeks ago in the Biden campaign was that Hispanic voters who he thought would be on his side because of immigration issues were actually a lot less interested in Biden than than even they were in Hillary Clinton. And they were, and a larger amount were for Trump, which shocked a lot of people because they thought, well, look, Trump is against, you know, immigration, right? He, or he's certainly against illegal immigration. And that's what these people care about, isn't it? And so my point was like, no, people care about a lot of things. And it's ridiculous that we have, you know, they get the, the people in the campaigns are all woke and online and whatnot. And they're, they're saying, oh, well, Hispanic people care about, it. they want more illegal immigrants, right? Because that's who most of the illegal immigrants are. They're you know, Mexican or Central American. But when you talk to Hispanic voters, that's not actually what they want. And I mean, a few do, like a few whites do. And, you know, but it's, I think, what I wrote about is instead of a campaign that targets this issue because they think, oh, that's what those people want, it targets a different issue because that's what they think those people want. What we, we need is, and I, I contrasted with Teddy Roosevelt's speech in uh, 1916 against against hyphenated Americans where he's talking about the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from. We should all, and we should all be, you know, we're all Americans. And his Roosevelt's address, Teddy Roosevelt's address was more directed against people who weren't accepting the new immigrants. You know, it was, I mean, there was a, there was an aspect of it that was sort of like, Hey, you're here now, you're Americans. But it mostly was about, Hey, they're here now. You have to accept that they're Americans too. And, you know, that's, that was a prog- that was a progressive idea. He was running as a third party progressive candidate, you know, in those days. Now, this the rebalkanization is the progressive idea, and that conservatives I I wrote had the opportunity to gain a lot of voters, but just by presenting a an even handed case and saying, "Here's things that are good for everybody. I don't care where you're from. I don't care where your parents are from. Here's something that's going to bring jobs to your community. Here's something that's going to." help make stronger families or help protect the national security, you know, all the, because I think, you know, the reason the Biden's people were shocked, a Hispanic voter would be for Trump. So like, Oh yeah, he's, you know, that's their issue and he's not for it. The point is it's not their issue. They, they have a lot of issues. And talk about a fundamentally racist assumption, right? Because you are of this color or group, these are the, issues that you care about and that's we will go ahead and rank order them for you you know it just really is crazy and i love the stats that you lay down here you say most hispanic voters do not want to criminalize decriminalize illegal immigration Mm -hmm. i mean i i know quite a few republican hispanics and they're just as appalled as i was to have the entire line of democratic candidates in that debate raise their hand and say let's have free health care for for illegal immigrants I, I was I was shocked at that, and then and, you know I, we we both we both follow politics pretty closely. Well, obviously, we have a whole podcast about it, but that one shocked me when I was watching that debate because it, that's that's way out there. Nobody's nobody's talking about that around here, you know. No, 
that's not that's not an issue I ever hear anybody say. This is what this is what we need to fix America. Free health care for illegal immigrants. Who is saying this? Yeah. And yet the whole party got on board with it. It's bizarre. And, and it's the same with uh these anytime you take a any poll that I've seen, I it, it always makes me chuckle about this you call it a, a perfectly well, you call it a, a made up word of Latin X. Mm-hmm. And Again, I was having a conversation. I mean, these are anecdotal, but look, I know a lot of Hispanics who voted for Trump and and I've talked to several about the Latinx thing and it's, that that's part of the woke agenda and just because people are brown or their ancestors, you know, their grandparents came from from uh, south of the border, like that doesn't that doesn't tell us anything about who they are today. And what's what's fascinating now is Trump could actually hit 40% of the Hispanic vote. That's just really remarkable. So Bush got 44%. You know, Romney was, I think, in the, the high 20s. And Trump Trump was in that range, maybe the low 30s last, last cycle. But, mm-hmm. I mean, what you're really seeing is a group of voters. In, in Florida, let's say, um, the, the polling, I mean, you're, you're seeing article after article written in in uh, hysteria from uh, from folks who run campaigns for Democrats, if they have any relation to Florida, because Trump is winning Hispanics in Florida. And part of that is because of the Cuban vote, but Cubans only make up less than 10% of the Hispanics in Florida. So it's not like it's an overwhelming part. It's, it's an important part, of course, mm-hmm. but it's not the only part. And it shows that things things are changing and it's in, in, in a very interesting way. And, you know, what you're, what, what we're getting back from all kinds of polling is really that these, these people are saying, yeah, immigration is important, but what's really important to me is jobs, you know, healthcare, the kids getting back to school. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think people don't want to be talked down to either. I mean, I, I read, a, I've been reading this book, uh, the real majority from 1970, which was about the, uh, the, the silent majority phenomenon, you know, under uh, when Nixon was running, so, and sort of the same kind of analysis as we're doing now is whether the the far left was repelling the average voter from the Democrats. So it's an interesting book, and I'm going to write about it. But one of the lines in there that impressed me is uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, the, the president's father, once said, "How many generations do I have to be here before I'm an American?" Yeah, yeah, and it's because everyone right. would talk about him as an Irishman, right? He's from, he was from Boston. You know, he was like the grandson of immigrants. Okay. And I think that's kind of what you're getting here in this, you know, today it's, well, you know, this, this group applies to you because your, you know, your, your grandfather came out of Mexico and your grandmother came from Honduras. It's like, well, yeah, but a lot of people's grandparents came from a lot of places, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That's why I I closed this with the, with the TR quote from that, that speech. It says, our ancestors came from many old world nationalities. It will spell ruin to this nation if these nationalities remain separated from one another instead of being assimilated to the new and larger American life. The children and children's children of all of us have to live in this land together. And we are. And that's why, I mean, you, people are, and people are increasingly, you know, in mixed families too. I mean, it's, it's, that was always somewhat true, that, but that's, that's part of the American experience. You know, it's, people are living together. You know, neighborhoods are more diverse. Families themselves are more diverse. 
I think people get tired of hearing that we're sums of our ancestry or sums yeah. of our sexuality or various other immutable characteristics. I, I absolutely agree. And it's an, an underreported part of this story is that what you just pointed out that there, there's a lot of interracial relationships and children. I mean, we, I have it in my family. I mean, the, mm-hmm. and, and how they're counted from here on out is so the whites, uh, the white percentage of the population is shrinking and the, the minority population is, is growing, but a lot of these people actually don't necessarily view themselves as, as a, a Latino, you know? Yeah. Like my, uh, we, we have family that, uh, that is, uh, interracial marriages on both, uh, you know, Hispanic and, and Asian and do the kids consider, you know, it's like, <laughs> we're, we're now in a place where the, uh, the folks on the left are telling them, no, you're one of these. And it, it's just a, a fascinating turn of events that we go from uh, a Jim Crow era where you're told that if you're one sixty fourth black, then you are black, uh-huh. to moving in the direction of a society where we're trying our very best to to create a colorblind society and to achieve Dr. Martin Luther King's vision. And obviously, there are missteps, and and we're not there, but moving in that direction to suddenly now. What we're saying is, no, if you are one sixty fourth Hispanic, then you're Hispanic, you know, right. and and you should care about immigration, and that should be your top issue, you know, and and it really is to me, it's uh, it's it's backwards, it's upside down, and it's not, it's uh, at first glance, it's surprising, but the more you think about it, maybe it's not that surprising that Trump and maybe a future Republican Party will have a much larger percentage of the Hispanic vote. Yeah. And I think, I think that both parties are trying to see how the old rules apply to newer immigrant groups, you know, and I think the Democrats are looking at every immigrant group and saying, well, they're going to vote like black people. And then the Republicans are looking at every immigrant group and saying, well, they're going to vote like white people. And I, it's in between, but I think we're closer to right because I think as generations go by people who, come here they don't want to be obsessed with where they're from they just are trying to live their lives as americans the same as anybody else and i think that you know the sort of insular conversations that are going on among policymakers you know the sort of folks that are running the biden harris campaign or their friends you know they're or you know who they follow on twitter and whatnot they're all talking about one thing i think most folks who aren't so politically obsessed you know who are just out there, they have ideas about politics, they vote, but they're not living it every day the way, you know, Twitter is. There, There's different ideas going on in those two groups. And I, I think it's probably surprising, it's probably shocking to people on Biden's campaign that he's not doing better with all these groups. Because all he's saying is, look, uh, the other guy, he's so horrible, right? Look, look at me. Um, but the reasons that Biden thinks Trump is horrible and the reason that Harris thinks Trump is horrible are not universal feelings among everybody who looks a certain way or lives a certain way or has a certain religion. It's, I, I, I wonder, I mean, polls are, if it was one poll, I'd say, who knows, but there's, there's a lot of this and we'll see when the vote happens, but it's, um, it's a, maybe a bigger realignment than we thought. Yeah. That's a great closing thought. And I'll just throw in, and because of my profession, I have these conversations all the time. What is the future of the Republican Party? What does it look like? And the conventional wisdom is 
essentially that if if Trump wins in 2020, that Republicans become the Trump party, whatever that might be. And if they, if Biden wins, then there is a lot of hope that Republicans will return to the party of Paul Ryan, basically what J.D. Vance uh, seems to despise. And frankly, I don't think either one of those are going to happen. And with, I think your articles kind of unveil a potential other option that's actually looking more likely. I mean, we, we can never know, but what if it is, what if the Republican party becomes the party of the forgotten man and working class whites, as well as a larger percentage of the Hispanic vote, that could be really interesting. And it would also absolutely change the types of issues that the, that the parties care about and, you know, the donor classes and so forth. So mm-hmm. well, we could be in for some, some very interesting times. And, and I honestly, I, I'm more of an observer in this and don't necessarily have feel like it should go one way or the other, but it's going to be interesting and fascinating. So anyway, great articles. That's Kyle Salmon. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time.